0: in this series, All In, for the last uh, several weeks. In fact, this is week eight, so last two months. This is week eight, and today is the last Sunday that we're going to be in this series, All In. And over the last two months, we have talked about what it looks like for us to go all in. We've looked at people in the Old Testament and the New Testament who decided that they were going to have these defining moments. And, And we said at one point, it really only takes about 20 seconds of insane courage just to have that defining moment where you go all in for the kingdom of Christ. And so we've, we've been asking the question this, this series for the last two months. What's it look like for us to be all in? What does my life look like after I go all in? How is life different? Because I think life becomes radically different when we decide that we're going all in. And so today we're going to wrap this series up and, and we're going to ask that question. We're going to continue to talk about that. And what it looks like to be all in? What does life look like if we're all in? And we're going to look at a, at a person in the Old Testament who is, is really kind of an odd dude. Um, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. That's where we're going to spend our time, Ezekiel chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> and if you know much about the Old Testament prophets, they, they have a lot of personality. And Ezekiel especially. In fact, Ezekiel, I call him the, the late night prophet. Because he has a lot of visions. And when you read through them, you, you read these visions and you're like, what is this guy talking about? What is this guy thinking? What's what is this guy? It, it's kind of like if you go to Taco Bell at eleven thirty or twelve o'clock at night, and and you get the the supreme burritos, and you know like, hey, this is not going to help me sleep well tonight, right? Like I'm gonna I'm gonna eat three or four of these, and I'm gonna be up all night. That's kind of the vision I get of Ezekiel. Is that he's the late night prophet? He's got all kinds of crazy visions, crazy ideas, and and you just think, did he eat too much Taco Bell? I mean, that's kind of kind of the thing so Ezekiel chapter 8 is where we're going to start he has this vision a vision of the temple and so we're just going to read verse 3 it says this in Ezekiel 8 3 the spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God he took me to Jerusalem remember this is a vision that Ezekiel is having he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes jealousy stood that's an odd phrase that he uses there isn't it The idol that provokes jealousy. I mean, we talk about jealousy, we think about God is not jealous for anything. He can't be. It's not in His nature. God is all-sufficient, so He can't be jealous. But the Creator is jealous for everything. Because it all belongs to Him. Everything belongs to Him. Every blade of grass, every drop of rain, every grain of sand, it all belongs to Him. Abraham Kuyper wrote this, he said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything was created by Him and for Him. And that includes you and me, all of you. Did you know this? There's never been or will be anyone like you ever. For some, we, think, we say, praise God for that, right? There's never going to be somebody else like us. But for others, I mean, there's never been anyone like you. But that isn't a testament to you. It's a testament to our creator, to to the one who created you. And and that means that because there's not going to be anybody else ever like you, that means that nobody else can worship God like you can. That means that nobody else can worship God for you because of you. It, (coughs) It means that you are absolutely irreplaceable in God's grand scheme. Think about that. There are 7 billion people in the world. 7 billion people in the world. And you are irreplaceable in God's grand scheme of things. If you don't hear anything else at all this morning, hear that, that you have value and worth as a human because God said so, because God created you. You are valuable to Him. And God is jealous for you. He's jealous for you, all of you. Every thought, every desire, every dream, every every word, every moment. He is jealous for all of those. He's the one that causes your, your synapses to fire. He's the one who conceives Dreams within your heart. He's the one who measures your days. It's all from him and it's all for him. That's why he's jealous. That's why being that's why being all in is the baseline. That that's why God will settle for nothing less than all in. It's why God calls us to be all in. Jealousy is one of those character traits that we don't we don't talk about much. You don't write country music songs about it, because it just is it's, it's not a great character trait that we think of we ignore it we don't I think we ignore it because we don't understand it jealousy has this negative connotation because for us it's usually the byproduct of of pride but God's jealousy is is a beautiful expression of God's love excuse me it's a jealous love that wants all of you all to himself and and if you've ever been in love then I think you 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 know that that's the most passionate form of love that there is and you start to understand it. I don't think that I really understood that kind of love until I became a husband and a father. I am jealous for my kids. I am jealous for my kids. Uh, more than anything else, I want my two boys to, to grow up and loving the Lord. I want them as their adults to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is my number one prayer that they would do that. But number two is that they still love mom and dad too. That as they get older, they'll, they'll still love mom and dad a little bit, even as they decide and determine that they don't need mom and dad as much but let me tell you this if if we were to get a few years down the road and and one of my boys decided they did not love mom and dad and somebody was to say well you know one out of two ain't bad 50 percent, that's pretty good I wouldn't settle for that I would say no that, that that's not that's not enough I want both of my boys to love me And it's the same with God. Look, there are 7 billion people in the world on on this earth in creation that God is currently created right now. And he wants you to love him. All of you to love him. And the fact that 99.9% of the world, which is an overstatement, but that that they might love God and you don't is not enough for him. It's not enough. It, It would be the same as him saying, well, one out of two ain't bad. No, it's not enough. It's the same with my wife. I am jealous for my wife, and that's the way it should be. She belongs to me and I belong to her. I, I think we often mistake the uh, make the mistake of thinking that marriage is a 50-50 proposition. We we especially we tell young couples that, that you know, look, you gotta you gotta make room for compromise and it's fifty-fifty and all that. It's not. It's not. If in fact, if you've been told that as a and maybe you're thinking about getting married or you've been or you just got married and somebody told you that they're, they're wrong. It's not. Marriage is not a 50 50 proposition. You don't meet in the middle when you meet at the altar. Look, I vowed all of me to all of her. It was for better, for worse, for richer or poor in sickness and in health. Marriage is not a compromise. It's an all or nothing proposition. It's putting ourselves on the altar at the altar. There is no more me. There is only we and anything less than that is adulterous anything less than we is adulterous I am jealous for my wife look if you mess with her you mess with me and I'm not a big guy but I promise you you mess with me and I will take you out all right my love for my wife is protective and possessive in, in the big things and the small things and it should be Jealousy in the context of of, of holy matrimony is one of the most beautiful expressions of love on earth. It allows us to see who we really are. It allows, when when you allow yourself to see you for who you really are, that is the bride of Christ, then you begin to understand the tenacity and the veracity of jealous love. And you also begin to see idolatry for what it really is. Idolatry is adultery. In the book of Ezekiel, go back to, to Ezekiel, this prophet, he's got all of these visions, and he has a vision of an idol that is dubbed the idol that provokes to jealousy. Scholars believe that that, that idol is a reference to the Canaanite goddess of fertility. It was their sex god. And I know it seems a little foreign to, and, and maybe even a little naive to read about uh, ancient pagans who would carve their own idols and, and bow down to pieces of whittled wood, but, but let me ask. Are we really any different? Are we any better? Or are all we are just a little more sophisticated sinner? The the God of lust is is worshipped openly and freely. And frequently. Don't believe me? Think about this. The pornography industry is a 100 billion, that's billion with a B, $100 billion industry. The God of lust is worshipped secretly and addictively everywhere. What I'm getting at is that we're still bowing down to the idol that provokes jealousy. And like every other idol, if we want to be all in, then those idols have to be dethroned. We we have to clear them out. So let me ask this question for you to think about this morning. What is your idol that provokes to jealousy? What is the idol that provokes to jealousy? What's the idol that keeps you from being all in? For, for some people, it's as simple as sex or money or food or career. For others, it, it might be disguised as false humility. But the idol that provokes to jealousy is anything that <coughs> excuse me, anything that diverts our attention from God, that diverts our affection from God, that diverts our reliance on God. Simply put, idolatry is this. It's anything that keeps you from going all in. Idolatry is anything that keeps you from going all in. And idolatry is anything that keeps God from being your all in all. And if you're not sure what your, what your idol that provokes jealousy might be, do this. I, there's a real simple way to figure it out. Check your calendar and your checkbook. Check those two things. Check your calendar and your checkbook because I guarantee you those two things will trace you back to the idol that provokes jealousy for you. Because those two things don't lie. They reveal what your true priorities are. They reveal the idol that provokes to jealousy. Look, we we need to understand this, that idolatry isn't a problem. It's the problem, okay? Idolatry isn't a problem, it's the problem. Sin is just a symptom of it. Idolatry is the root cause. You you can't just confess the sin. You've got to dethrone the idol. You've got to get rid of the cause. It's like when you have this Kentucky crud or whatever. (laughs) You, you, You can treat the symptoms all you want, but if you don't ever treat the cause, you're just masking it. Look, idolatry is, is the problem. It's the root cause. And so to discover what it is, you might have to dig a little deeper to discover what your idol is. The, the Canaanite goddess of, of sex, it was the most visible idol in the temple that, that Ezekiel saw. But it was just really the tip of the idolatry iceberg. When, when Ezekiel peered in through, through a peephole into a hidden room within the temple, he saw He saw crawling things and unclean animals that were portrayed on the walls like ancient hieroglyphics. And if you go back and you read the rest of that chapter, I mean, his vision is it's it's really rather disturbing. He sees all of these things that are that are unclean. Let me ask you, what's what's etched on the walls of your mind? What's what's concealed in the hidden room of your heart? He he peers into a secret room. What's in the secret room of yours? Because all of us, we have hidden rooms. We have secret rooms. We have that secret sin. It's where we we can hide that secret sin of ours that that nobody else sees. Or at least we think nobody else sees, except God, right? It's it's what you do when no one is looking. It's who you are when nobody else is present. It's the place where we conceal our most precious idols. And the enemy, Satan would love for you to, to just keep all of your sin a secret. He would love for you to just to keep putting more and more stuff into that secret compartment of your heart, that secret compartment of your mind, because that's how he blackmails you. It is. It, <clears throat> you just keep it a secret. Nobody will know about this, but you, you just keep it a secret, and that's how he continues to blackmail you. But let me just tell you this. There is power in confession. There is, there is power and freedom in confession. When, when we confess our sins, we, we take hold back the power that Satan takes from us. When we confess our sins to 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 God, we give God the opportunity to have that power. We we're freeing ourselves from that sin that, that so easily entangles us. Early in, in my ministry career, I, I was I, w- I would sometimes find myself shocked or surprised by some of the, the secret sins that people would confess. I mean, you hear a lot of stuff sometimes and, and sometimes it can it can be surprising and maybe even more I was surprised by the people that would confess it. But I'll tell you this, I'm not surprised by sin anymore. In fact, we none of us should be. We shouldn't be surprised by sin because all of us have been a participant in it. In fact, just the opposite now. I'm more surprised by, by the rare person who has the moral courage to, to confess their sin. And I'll tell you, that's why my opinion of someone who confesses their sin never goes down. It never goes down. It always goes up. Because confessing sin, is is, there's freedom there, there's power there. Confessing sin allows shame to rush out and allows grace to rush in. When you confess sin to to one another, to to God, what you're doing is you're releasing shame. You're getting rid of shame and you're allowing grace to fill that void. You're allowing grace to replace the the hole that shame filled. And I want to be a grace-filled person. There, there's a couple guys out in Las Vegas named Judd Height and Mike Foster. They're the founders of an organization called People of the Second Chance. They are leading grace advocates. And I think that mentality has helped them in, in the way that they minister. Judd is the, is the lead minister at Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. And you would think, churches out in Las Vegas, they, po- they couldn't possibly do well, could they? But man... Central Christian Church, man, they are reaching people who are far from God. And I think it's because they, they've, they've created this idea that it's okay to not be okay. In fact, that's their mantra around their church is that it's okay to not be okay. They, they've created a culture of grace where people don't have to pretend that everything is okay, which is the exact opposite of what a lot of us do, don't we? Because we, we like to pretend that everything is okay. You, you, you get ready for church on Sunday morning and kids are screaming right they're running around the house they can't find their shoes and and they they're they've changed their outfits three times in the outfit you finally got on they've spilt something all over and, and your husband is yelling hey we got to go and you're yelling hey we're 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 not ready yet and it's just chaos right and you load up into the car and the whole what whole drive to church is just more chaos somebody pulled out in front of you and you, you say something you probably shouldn't say right get it i've been there you yell at you Still, the, the conversation is not a conversation. It's, it's just two people yelling at each other and happen to be yelling at kids in the back. And then you pull into the church parking lot and you open the door and it's like, ah, everything's fine, right? It's this uh, like Stepford wife thing takes over and you have these, these fake grins and, and it's like, I need church, right? By the time I got to church, I need church. But we pretend like everything's fine. Look, everything is not fine. And it's okay that everything is not fine. It doesn't mean we have to pretend that everything is okay. And it doesn't mean that we just put a stamp of of approval on sin. It just means that we don't hide from it and we don't ignore it. That's what, what they've done out in Las Vegas. They don't hide from or ignore the fact that everybody's not okay. Look, grace is loving people for who they are and where they are. Grace is loving people for who they are and where they are. It's loving people before they change, not just after they change. We like people after the change, don't we? But grace is loving people before the change. And that that difference between, (coughs) between loving them before and after is the difference between holy and holier than thou. Loving people before they change, not just after, is the difference between holy and holier than thou. Holiness in its purest form is irresistible. It is. It's irresistible. That's why sinners couldn't be kept away from Jesus. They were drawn to His holiness. But the opposite of that is hypocrisy, and hypocrisy has the opposite effect. It's as repulsive to the irreligious as the Pharisees' religiosity was to Jesus. So what's in your hidden room? What's in your hidden compartment, in that that secret part of your mind and your heart that just pushes everything in and, and lets Satan have a hold there? What's there? Ezekiel goes on in his vision, and he, <clears throat> after he reveals what's in the hidden rooms, he encounters one more idol at the entrance to the north gate of the temple. He saw women mourning the, the, god of, uh, the idol Tammuz, who's the Babylonian fertility uh, god of spring. The key word, though, is that they were mourning. If you want to identify your idols, you need to reverse engineer your emotions. You need to trace the, the trail of your tears and your fears and your cheers and your jeers. You need to trace all of those. And if you follow them all the way to the trailhead, you'll come face to face with the idols that you have in your life. That's your temas. That's your what makes you sad or mad or glad? What ruins your day or, or makes your day? What triggers your strongest emotional reactions? Look, the indictment here against the Israelites isn't, that, isn't just that they were having an emotional affair with <clears throat> with a false god. What's even worse is that they were flatlined with their feelings toward the very God who created them with emotion. That was the, that was the even worse. It wasn't it was, you know, it's one thing to have a this emotional affair with this false god, but it's an even another deal just to ignore and reject the one God who created you to have those emotions. Look, if your deepest feelings are reserved for something other than God, then that whatever something is is your emotional idol. And look, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get excited when, you're, when your favorite team or your favorite hobby or your favorite food, you shouldn't, I'm not saying you shouldn't get excited about those things. But if you get more excited about those material things than you do the simple yet profound fact that your sin was nailed to the cross by the sinless Son of God, then you're bowing down to Tamus, And I get it. Look, we all have different personality types, but that doesn't get to be an excuse here. How you show emotion isn't the issue. Neither is, is when or where you show emotion. The real issue is why do you show emotion? Why are you showing emotion? Does your heart break for the things that breaks God's heart? Does your heart rejoice in the things that, that God's heart rejoices for? That's the question. Did you know that the estimated number of unique human emotions range is as high as 400? about 400 different human emotions. But no matter how many they are, we are called to love them, to, to love God with every single one of them. That's what it means to love God with all of our heart, to love Him with all of our emotions. Look, the distance between your head and your heart is only about 12 inches. But that's the difference between information and transformation. It's, an, it's not enough to just invite Jesus into our minds. We have to open the doors to, to the heart of hearts that we have. No, no doors can remain locked. They all have to be, be out and out in the open. Not even the door to our hidden rooms. They they've got to all come out. And look, nothing entangles it entangles the emotions like sin can. Nothing does. And if you sin long enough, it, it starts to feel like one of those Gordian knots that you just can't get untangled. But understand this: Jesus went to the cross to undo what we have done. He broke the curse of sin so that we could break the cycle of sin. So that we could be all in. At the end of the day, that's, that's what this whole series has been about. That's what, what we're going to harp on for the, for the next however long uh, the Lord decides. Is that we've got to be all in. We just have to, to decide, am I going to be all in? Am I going to make that one decision that allows me to be all in? Look, I, I get it. People are, are nervous about making public decisions. They're nervous about just decisions made in church, period. I get all of that. I, I get the, the apprehension that comes with that. And so I'm not asking you to make any public decision today. I'm just asking you, are you going to decide whether or not you're all in? Because if you're not all in, and you've heard me say this before, if you're not all in, then what are you doing here? Because you could sleep in on Sunday mornings. Most of us don't have to work on Sunday. And so if you're not going to be all in, sleep in. Enjoy the day, right? Go play golf. Go, go do whatever. But if you're going to be all in, then be all in. It's, it can't be one foot in and one foot out. It's all or nothing. Few Americans ha- have stamped the collective conscience of our country, like Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a, an intellectual prodigy. He, did you know that he entered Yale University at age 12? And he's buried at Princeton University where he was the president until he died in 1758. Jonathan Edwards was the author of dozens of volumes, both theological and inspirational. It, it was Edwards who sparked that, that first great awakening in America with his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But you know what his greatest legacy might be? His greatest legacy might be his progeny which includes more than 300 ministers and missionaries, 120 university professors, 60 authors, 30 judges, 14 college presidents, three members of Congress, and one vice president of the United States. That's an incredible legacy. And that legacy, like every other spiritual genealogy, traces back to to one defining moment. It was Jonathan Edwards' defining moment. It was his all-in moment. On January the 12th, 1723, Edwards made a written dedication of himself to God. He wrote it out longhand in his diary, and he, he would revisit it often over the years. And here's what he wrote. He wrote this down. He said, I made a solemn dedication of myself to God. And I wrote it down, giving up myself and all that I had to God to be for the future in no respect my own, to act as one that had no right to himself in any respect, and solemnly vowed to take God for my whole portion and felicity, looking on nothing else as any part of my happiness, nor acting as if it were. Along with that vow, Edwards formulated 70 goals or or resolutions that would become the foundation of his faith and his practice for years. And he would revisit them once a week throughout his life. And you know what? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. If you don't hold out on God, God will not hold out on you. Look, there is nothing that God cannot do in and through a person who is fully committed to Him. We want to do amazing things for the Lord, don't we? But that's not our job. Our job is not to do amazing things. That's God's job. Our job is to be fully surrendered, all that we have, all that we are, to Him, to the Lordship of Jesus. And if we do our job, then God will most certainly do His job. So we stand on the same 3,000-year-old promise that the Israelites did, found in Joshua. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. God wants to do amazing things. But he's simply waiting for for us. So what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Are you you ready to go all in? Because I think you're just one decision away. One decision away from living a, a completely different life. It's never too late to be who you thought you wanted to be. But know this, it's never too late for a child of God to come back to God. God is waiting to do amazing things. He's just waiting on us. So what are you going to do? It's it's now or never. it's, It's time to put up or shut up, right? It's all or nothing. It's time to go all in for the all in all. So will you be all in? Let me pray for us.